This is Pat Prince, editor of Goldmine Magazine, and welcome back to the Goldmine Podcast. Today we'll have Larry Jaffe on. He is the author of a new book called Record Store Day, The Most Improbable Comeback of the 21st Century. Now, this book is, you know, obviously the history of Record Store Day, and it covers the whole phenomenon of it, how it began, how it's doing, the music industry response of it, and, uh, of course, plenty of Record Store Day owners as well. Now, it comes in paperback, hardback, and with the hardback, which you probably see at some record stores on Record Store Day, it comes with uh, a full album, vinyl, of Record Store Day performances, and that's Paul McCartney, Metallica, Pearl Jam, Mud Honey, a whole bunch of bands that it was basically curated by Record Store Day for this book. So it's an official book, uh, authorized book uh, by the Record Store Day uh, organization. And look out for it. Um, you can also buy it at you know not only record stores after Record Store Day if it's still available, but also online as well. But Larry has written for Goldmine before. He's He's done some uh, great articles uh, on, you know, for Goldmine. Uh, he's done one of the my favorite articles, which was called The First Rock Bootlegger Comes Clean. And it was about a Bob Dylan bootleg called The Great White Wonder. And most people know uh, what that is. Uh, but he talks about the guys who put it together and what happened to them. It's still online at goldminemag.com. Which leads me to say, don't forget to go to goldminemag.com for exclusive content uh, there. And you also can go to our record store, if you're not aware of it, and that's shop.goldminemag.com. Okay, well, we'll be right back after this message with Larry Jaffe and talk about his book about Record Store Day. All right, Larry, well, welcome to the podcast. Larry, maybe you can explain how this all came about writing a book on record store day. Sure. So it's, it's kind of a funny story. In um, 2015, um, I was doing an email blast for a fanzine that I published about not music, actually um, British television and specifically a British TV show called EastEnders, which uh, started in 1985 in, in England, um, came to the U.S. in late 1987. Um, and it was distributed by, um, initially, I don't know, about 30 or 40, uh, public television stations, um, around the country, PBS affiliates. So, um, unbeknownst to me, one of my subscribe. so, so I, I was looking to, uh, get renewals, subscription renewals and record store day was coming up in 2015. And I, I had a copy of the original 45 single that the BBC issued for the theme song. So I, I, my, my um, subject line was um, uh, RSD uh, coming up, you know. Um, so my, my tagline was something like, if the BBC knew what they were doing, they would reissue this for, um, for Record Store Day. Um, yeah. So I get an email back from one of my subscribers who says my ex-husband's one of the co-founders of record store days. So I wrote it back and I said, who is it? 
And she said, Michael Kurtz. So I said, oh, I'd love to meet him. You know, and I knew of Michael, but I, we hadn't really crossed paths yet. So uh, she gives me the email. Turns out I'm staying like 15 blocks away from where he lives. Next day, we're having coffee. I mean, it was, it was just like that synchronicity. And um, he, you know, so he and I became, you know, very fast friends. Um, that happened in 2015. So at that point, I was starting to write about the village, I mean, the, the, uh, the uh, vinyl revival. And um, I interviewed Michael for that article. Um, it, that piece ran in something called the audiophile voice. Mm. Um, the next year in 2017, uh, Michael invited me to uh, Record Store Day summer camp in New Orleans, which was a conference that they were running. But at the same time, we were planning our first making vinyl event uh, and Michael um, was representing uh, Record Store Day as a, you know, a, a founding partner of sorts to, to making vinyl. And we did that with Jack White and uh, his third man pressing in mm -hmm. Detroit. Um, so, uh, so Michael and I were already working together in various different capacities. And I, I wrote for a, a magazine called Long Live Vinyl, uh, a piece about what Record Store Day summer camp was all about. Um, and I guess Michael liked it and he followed some of the other writing I've been doing over the years. Um, so around, what was it? Uh, October, 2020, he called me and said, hey, are you interested in writing a book about the history of Record Store Day? So I said to him, I was I was born to write that book. <laughs> so, <laughs> now, I said that, but there were a couple of funny things about this. I didn't I missed the first six years. Well, at least the, the first five years of Record Store Day. I had no idea it existed. And, and, and that sounds really ludicrous, but it's true. What happened was for eight years, I edited a magazine called Media Line that covered CD and DVD production. Mm. We would do like a quarterly vinyl uh, supplement in it every once in a while, you know, every every few years. Um, so maybe it wasn't quarterly, but we, we, we would periodically do a, a vinyl uh, supplement. Um, so I never, you know, at that stage, I was still interested in vinyl. I, I always called myself sort of format agnostic. Um, and I spent my money everywhere. And I still do. You know? So, so <laughs> I... Um, um, now, the interesting thing about the timing of all this, when Michael asked me about the book, I had just finished writing about cybersecurity for 10 years for this company, and they decided they didn't want to use freelancers anymore. And uh, so they paid, they paid a dollar a word, you know, I mean, it was a like great money. And I did really interesting, you know, stories about the presidential election getting hacked and stuff like that in 2016. So, but I needed to replace that, you know, I needed, you know, it was like, what am I going to do now? So the book just, you know, emerged just at the, the best possible time. Um, and, I, you know, I gave him an outline and said, you know, this is where I think this book should go. And he liked the outline. And, um, you know, initially we were, we were going to do it ourselves, but um, about halfway through the book, writing the book, 
I said to him, you know, I know I said, you know, we would, we should do it ourselves, but you know, we might be able to get a, a major publisher interested in this, you know, and it would save us a lot of that headache. And I had already started you know, talking to printers and getting quotes and things like that at that stage. Um, so, I mean, I don't really have regrets about that portion of it because I published two of my own books with that EastEnders newspaper. So I know, I know what it's, you know, what it takes. The anxiety level, yeah. <laughs> putting it together. It's like a right. magazine, right? Well, one of the best things I like about it is it comes with vinyl itself. And these are, um, performances that were done during record store day at various record stores yeah i have the record right here in fact um how did that yeah it's called live at the oh right, so that's one of the reasons we ended up going with the publisher that ended up publishing the book uh it's rare bird uh books in los angeles um their um publisher the, the founder of that company um is a musician himself and he's always had um companion records i mean a lot of times the, this would be like fiction and then it would be like spoken word type of stuff um so michael um and i said look i don't have the voice to do spoken words so don't expect me to read the book i don't think that's that's like good use of that component but right. so michael had in mind to um gather tracks of performances at record stores that's great. I mean, who recorded these? I mean, did they well, some. Them? I mean, a few of them had come out previously. Like, for example, it opens up with Paul McCartney "Drive My Car." Yeah, yeah. Me, right. Uh, which was actually before that. What's interesting about that was in two thousand and seven, and in right. the book they talk about what that event was like, and you know what some of the things that Paul said that at that gig. And how he was reminiscing about the Beatles when they first showed up at Brian Epstein's store and um, they would look at import singles. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, I mean, I think what the, it's a pretty eclectic list, you know, Pearl Jam, Billie Eilish, Brandy Carlisle, right. Jason Isbell, Justin Towns Earl, Jose Gonzalez, Metallica, Mudhoney, Imagine Dragons. Regina Spector, Frightened Rabbit. So I Michael curated. I had no gotcha. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, I you know, I just handled the the book writing portion of it. Yeah. Right. Well, that was a great idea right there. Um to well, do yeah. I mean, the great thing about it is so here's the the you got hard a paperback, hard yeah, cover. The, and the, yeah, the paperback edition is this one. Yep. Um, so this is just like a standard. Um, I hope gold mine selling this. <laughs> I I have to check. I hope so. Oh. Um, the um, so there was a cap of I think fourteen hundred total hardcover books, um, of which eleven hundred contained the record. But it was free. I mean, if, if it's the same price with or without um, the record. Right. And I asked Michael about that. I said, you know, what, why, why is that the case? So he said, because the artists who provide the music insisted on that. Hmm. Now, will, will these be available in record stores on record store day? Yeah. So the, so the um, edition with the record is only going to be sold at record stores. Okay. Uh, and I would think that that would sell out. Yes. Um, 
that first day. I mean, I can imagine that stuff. I received an email the other day from a guy in in Canada who was saying that um, Canadian stores are not getting it. Mm. And you think they'll they'll be able to put it online or something like that? It'll be flipped. Um, you know, that's what I. That's exactly what I said. You know, I don't know to what you know how much. You know, <laughs> I mean that's in, and that's something that you know really bothers record store day. One. Oh yeah, I've, I've and and, and, and also I mean just the the consumers who participate. You can't, you can't help it. I mean it's going to happen. You know, um, but you know if you look at the. The positive side, this guy in Canada will be able to get it. I mean, of course, he's going to pay more. Yeah. But he's going to be able to get it. Right. Right. So um, now, will there ever be uh, a time when the record will be sold alone? Not just. I haven't heard of that. I mean, I don't think they're planning that. I I think it has to be a companion. I I think this is going to be a one time only. Right. You know, that's not to say if we do like a new edition at some point, um, we do a new record, which could happen. I don't know. I wanted to talk about the subtitle, the most improbable comeback of the 21st century. Um, I think I think that, yes, it's true, but I'm not that surprised when I really, you know, I've thought about it and just the way things happen. Right. Um, during the 90s, you have the CDs, and let's face it, I was pissed off as a CD collector that the CDs got cheaper and cheaper, less booklets, crappy jewel cases, and they're charging $20, almost like $16.99, almost $20, right? <clears throat> that's everywhere, record stores, Tower Records, whatever. And they're really, you could see now they sell for six bucks. They're not that expensive to make, right? They never were, actually. Yeah. So, okay, then you have, okay, the digital age coming, right? And everyone thought, oh, Napster, I can get songs I never could afford free, blah, blah, blah. And then then you had the, um, you had Apple come along. So now you have people getting into digital. But then I knew that there was going to be, um this sort of like not hatred but you know people being sick of this digital thing because you know it's like a ghost in the machine you don't get anything with it you don't get this tangible object that tells you all this information and it's not you know cd may do that but it's so small and you you kind of feel like you don't know who the producer i mean i can remember buying uh, Spoon and Muse on Apple when they first came out. I didn't even know who the members were. You know, of course, I had a, I read up on who they were, but I want that information there when I'm holding and listening to it, you know? And I, I never thought that now you could buy digital and, you know, stuff that really sounds good, but I didn't think of the sound was there. It was... I just knew there was going to be this throwback of people saying like this revolution, another revolution, which would be the vinyl resurgence. Now, maybe I thought that because I'm into it already. Right. But um, I think it was an improbable comeback for the mainstream, obviously, for certain. Well, I agree with part of what you said, but at the same time, I think um, it's still a fraction of the audience that cares enough for the tangible. 
right. they're perfectly fine of the convenience of having everything on their phone. And I mean, I, I didn't participate in the Napster revolution, but I did, you know, when iTunes came on, I, I probably bought a hundred single tracks at some point, I don't, a couple yeah. full albums. But <laughs> um, what happened was with that magazine I used to edit called Media Line, I went out of business in 2006. And I was in a new relationship with a woman who talked me into downloading, I mean, to, to uh, digitizing my CD collection. <laughs> so I had 4,000 CDs, right? And I ended up selling 3,000 of them. But I also sold almost all of my LP collection. Um, I sold 2,000 DVDs at that time. Um, I had two boxes of records that it was like, do not touch. One of those boxes disappeared. So as a result, I lost my original uh, first two Roxy Music records, for example. You know, some of the Patti Smith, like I had Patti Smith signed right. by Radio Ethiopia, gone. I mean, you know, like stuff like that, I would have never gotten rid of, you know. But, um, but some of it, like the Joey Ramone sign, the Lou Reed sign, some of that stuff was in the right box, you know. It's not, it's not, <laughs> but anyway, um, I, um, but getting back to the, the subhead, because I'm, I'm, you're the first person to ask me about that. A friend of mine said to me, that's like a very funny thing. The 21st century has just started. <laughs> like, how, can yeah. you, how can you make such a like, <laughs> you, right, when you think about it, we're only 22 years into it. Uh, so, I mean, he's not wrong about that. So, um, but I don't really think there's another example of a technology coming back or will come back. Mm. Um, I mean, it is improbable. And the reason... It makes it makes no technological sense, economic sense, or ecological sense in the 21st century in the digital. Well, for the collector, for the collector, however, doesn't it make sense? Well, yeah, but see, the difference is, it's true, vinyl never completely went away, right? No. It because the audiophile labels and the DJs, right? right. You know, were like burning their own mixes and things, not burning, but getting their own mixes yeah. made to acetate and things like that. So there was always, but it was a blip on the radar screen as far as the RIAA. It was a negligible in terms yeah. of, you know, sales. Um, so the book picks up the story in 2007 when Tower Records is basically liquidated completely. Mm. Um, and you, what you have is, about 150 independent record stores, maybe 200, trying to figure out if they still have a future. Um, now, I think during the CD era, you know, it was not the same culture that existed like in the 70s when I grew up. No, or even the 80s, right? The beginning of the 80s. You know, like you hung out, you would hang yeah. out at the at the record store, learn. And about... you know what, Larry? I didn't mind paying 30 bucks for a piece of vinyl. I back then, even 20 something for a piece of vinyl. But yet I used to get so pissed off at spending around 20 for a CD. Well, that's actually one of the premises in the book that if it wasn't for the CD, this revival of vinyl would never have happened. And what I mean by that is that the CD was able to get 
people to rebuy what they already owned for twice as much money. And it's happened. It's history repeating <laughs> itself. But the other interesting thing about that is the way that the LP originally got killed yeah, was yeah. that the major labels said, you know, we're not going to accept returns on unsold stock anymore. Hmm. Um, but we will on CDs because they wanted to make sure that the CD caught fire and what became the format. The interesting thing is that in like the latter part of the 80s, the cassette was the leading configuration at that point. Weren't they also Before trying to push? They, they gave way to the CD completely. What's that? Yeah. Weren't they trying to push that? that yeah, but that was just more <laughs> of a Japan, Sony push. Like the mini disc was like another thing that they talked about. Like, mm -hmm. but that never, that was like an audiophile professional medium. It, it was never really considered as a consumer thing. Right. Um, but on the, um, on the, and I wrote about that whole CD changeover, um, how they, the um, major labels um, were so concerned about that, that that's what they did all their licensing agreements over, like in terms of getting collective royalties and blank that's, um, that they completely, it didn't occur to them that really what they should have been worrying about was the CDR, you know, the blank CD. And I remember like around 2000, there was this um, story in one of the pubs about what's the best selling CD, a blank CD. <laughs> and, you know, when you like add up all the blank, you know, because then Napster was going crazy and, there was a reason to like download this stuff. The funniest thing is I recently read Trevor Noah's book, um, Born a Crime. When he was in high school, he told his mom that he needed a computer for uh, school, um, which wasn't true. And <laughs> <laughs> he, he basically became a CD bootlegger. Yeah. He would use like, all, he would download all the, every, every music and then have like a network of sales team go out and sell these like blank uh, these cds of what every what uh, every music you know um and then he was moonlighting as a dj at, at parties and the cops basically shut down this party because of noise and they he couldn't shut it down because it was windows 95 the cop is like with a machine gun shut that off you know and he shoots the monitor I mean, it's the funniest book. I mean, Trevor is a fantastic writer. I mean, I'll have to, find, I'll have to so, check it out. So, so um, you know, so then he kills his business, like both of his businesses, the, the DJing as well as his bootlegging CD business. But anyway, um, the other premise about the book is that the limited editions was what sparked this whole interest again in, in, in vinyl. Um, and Getting back to the returns issue. So when Michael Kurtz started talking to the labels and Warner was like the first one that he really spoke to among the majors that liked what they were hearing, mm -hmm. um, they basically said, but it has to be a one-way transaction, no returns. You basically mm -hmm. the retailers are stuck with whatever they buy. Um, and as a result, I think the retailers have been very careful to only order what they have, you know, a fairly confident will sell. And what the number I keep on hearing from every record store day 
is that 85% of the inventory usually goes pretty quickly. But I got to tell you, I'd love it as a collector to go in the store and see, you know, prior record store day releases. Yeah, me because too. I, I might not have been to that store on record store day. I, I love it. Right. And usually they give you a dollar off or whatever. And I just, I really dig it. That's one of my favorite things is to check out the, the vinyl that's left over. And a lot of it is like uh, 45s, uh, seven inches. And I love those things, even though I own all the songs. But I'm a collector. And, but the thing I'm proud about Goldmine is we're not just um, writing about vinyl. We're all music collecting. And I find it fascinating that, you know, because I, my best friends are collectors, right? They're collecting eight tracks. I just had a friend who bought like 500 eight tracks. And I went over there and I was just like, um, not that I was in heaven, but I was like, wow, this is so cool. And we started finding stuff on these eight tracks that weren't available on the actual albums, like Pink Floyd, Wish You Were Here. You know, there's a, there's a solo by Snowy White. You know, you find all these things. You know, of course, there's the part one and part two phenomenon, but um, eight tracks and, be, and before that, cassettes. And Record Store Day has put out cassettes, Metallica, you know, the demo tape. And so well, I think um, I, was I even asked say, Michael Kurtz if he'd be doing more of this besides vinyl. And he said, it's a possibility. We'll do more of that. Yeah, I mean, Third Man Records, you know, puts out cassettes regularly. Um, <clears throat> I do know that. I mean, here's a funny thing about A-Tracks as a collector perspective. Um, okay. So after 25 years of trying, I finally landed an interview with Lou Reed. This was in 2003. So I've, you know, I'm a huge fan. So I, I had to get an autograph. And I usually don't do that. Like last night I was hanging out with Jack White and I had records I would love for him to sign, but it just didn't seem the right. There were so many other things to talk about, you know, so I didn't want to mess that I up. I heard Lou Reed's a, was a hard interview. Well, actually, it's I've funny. I asked, I asked my friends, uh, uh, Lenny Kay and David Fricky about how to approach it. Yeah. And Lenny said, just stick with technology. You can't go wrong, you know. And then David, I said, I think he said, like, you know, don't ask him any personal questions you'd be okay <laughs> or something like that so um and that pretty much worked and in fact the magazine company that i worked for published a bunch of um other musician oriented titles like um uh, guitar player um uh, uh keyboard um um mix you know so i, I brought all those tech so mm -hmm. lou devoured that stuff mm -hmm. Um, and he's like pointing to a piece of equipment. And he says, you know, if this review is right, <laughs> I was like, I don't know. You know, I mean, it was like another magazine editors, but I, but getting back to what I chose to, for him to autograph. And he was, he was actually very nice about that. I brought a promo copy of metal machine music on vinyl. <laughs> <laughs> and then I bought, I uh, brought, and that was a gift to me. Uh, this woman I knew didn't want it. And she said, here, take this. And I was like, because she knew I was a record collector. I mean, and this was like in the 80s when she gave that to me. Um, and then uh, the A-track of Velvet Underground Live at Max Max's in, uh, Kansas City. And 
because it had such a black cover, Lou actually went to the trouble of getting a silver um, a magic marker so that his autograph would like stand out. I mean, I that was very nice. I mean, it was like a sweet side to him that, yeah. I mean, at times I was, I was, I was concerned he was going to kick my ass because like I, I said to him, you know, you had Ornette Coleman. This is when the Raven came out on, on two tracks. And he goes, no, one track. You know, like, <laughs> but but um, and and the other interesting thing about Lou when I, I finally was able to get his attention, it was at a Barnes and Noble. He was doing a, a CD signing, mm. and um, I asked him. I said, Lou, did you ever think about mixing this in surround sound? Because the magazine I was working for covered that you know that side of the business, and it, he turns to his publicist and he said, "See surround sound." as if they were like just talking about that. So then he says, um, what do you know about that? So I said, well, I have friends who are, you know, steep in that. Um, I'm just a writer editor, um, but I'd love to interview you about the subject. So he's, he turns to the publicist and says, set it up. You know, and like the next day I'm at, uh, not next week, I'm like sitting in his office, Sister Ray at, uh, on Broadway. <laughs> so. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it was a, it was fun, you know, um, but um, now are you going to, now I have to ask you, are you going to be at record store day? Oh yeah. Um, no, I get up early in the morning. And in fact, um, I usually end up at uh, a place called rock and soul on West 37th street. Now you shouldn't be right, waiting in line. You should get the VIP. Well, you, you see, but they have, <laughs> they have real rules about this stuff. In I fact, know they do. I, I remember Michael. I told Michael around 2016 that, um, you know, my friend that orders in advance what I'm interested in getting, and and he goes, he's not supposed to ask you that. Like, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> is, me, I, yeah. But I worked there at the store once, and Michael goes, you're especially not supposed to be getting it that way. <laughs> so. I, I've uh, been to the, you know, my friends would say, why did you wait in line for two hours? You, you edit gold mine. You should be there. The first person there, they should let you in. I was like, yeah, it doesn't work that way. Well, yeah, I mean, that was the other thing about the Not book. Fair. I mean, you know, whatever. The, book, the, the book is basically trying to correct misconceptions of what people have about record store day. Yeah. You know, that it's just Very. a ruse by the major labels to make money uh, yeah. that record store day itself profits off of all these records which is totally untrue they don't have any oh yeah i'm i meeting michael i think he has great integrity and that's why i try to interview him every year because i want people to see that because i know you've probably heard it and i talk to record store owners you know that don't like record store day and i can't figure it out you know they think it's you know a way to just make money and i i, I can't get through to them you know it's so like, you know how it is when people are just set in their ways and they just, you know, especially the used stores, the ones that sell used vinyl, they then don't sell much new stuff. They they really like turn their, ah, I don't want to do, or they'll say, oh, I don't like getting what they send me. Um, you know, I want to be able to pick that, you know, because I specialize in psychedelic vinyl or. I specialize in, you know, whatever. Um, well, I mean, th there's no um, minimum no solution in for terms of, a, you know, like they, they don't have to like order 100 copies of a record that they have no interest 
in in selling right um so again they have to be very selective and the other thing is and i hear i've heard this and it's in the book actually anecdotes of of store owners saying that they ordered 40 copies of it and they maybe get four you know right. Um, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. So, That's you know, true. the allocations is a, not an easy job, especially with what's been happening in the last year or two in terms of the pressing crunch that all the plants are basically operating at capacity right. and, and, and doing it. But at the same time, it's not true that the record store day stuff gets priority over other releases. No, That's no. basically between the label and the um oh I, I love how record some record stores have it where while you're waiting in line on the side are used records so you can pick out used records while you're waiting but, i mean yeah that's the whole point of it is the culture of the record store i mean that's the whole point of it you know all these other things are you know just things to debate for collectors right i mean well no that's true and the book actually when i started the book i thought it was all about the limited edition records right and i realized no it's really about the record store culture of my youth that yeah. i missed you know where you meet bandmates where you learn about music where you might meet girlfriends right. or future spouses right. you learn about life you know right. and um now on the other hand the limited editions did it was a coat it was a it was a cohesive message that I think the vinyl industry desperately needed to I call attention so. to what they did and the importance to popular culture and the, their co local communities. Um, and but getting back to what you were saying about used record stores, they can still celebrate record store day. You know, oh, they yeah. could put like they don't. They could say you know twenty percent off all you know inventory come you know and get a band to play you know and have a party so and record store day doesn't have uh, any, any um problems with with doing that right um they are protective of the brand though you know so for example you can't just take the, the record store day logo sticker and stick it on any record and yeah I know. that's a problem for them yeah well, this book is a fascinating read and every, every collector, vinyl collector should read it. So um, I hope they find it on Record Store Day. And if not, it will still be available. Yeah, um, well, the, I mean, the paperback should be, you know, available at good bookstores or being able to order by any, any bookstore. I mean, we're distributed by Ingram, which is one of the major right. distributors. So um, both, and the hardcover edition too. I have a feeling that hardcover is going to, you know disappear pretty quickly as well well yeah with the record absolutely well even without the record because there's not that many more yeah. copies i think that will be available okay. it, I, I that i don't know if they did they'll you know all right buddy all right thanks so much thank you larry don't forget to buy the book on record store day if you see it hopefully you can get it with the vinyl album the hardcover with the vinyl album that has the performances of Record Store Day performances at stores. It's a nice companion piece to the book, um, if you find it. Now, don't forget to go to goldminemag.com for other exclusive content and go to shop.goldminemag.com to buy vinyl and other collectibles and accessories. Also, don't forget to get pick up the magazine, the print edition, 
It is bi-monthly, and it is at Books A Million and Barnes & Noble stores, select stores. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Goldmine Podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.